Thank you for listening to a sermon from Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Kenmore, New York. Our senior pastor is Justin Olivetti. To reach Knox Church, please email us at office at knoxepc.com or call us at 716-873-2423. To request prayer, email us at prayerchain at knoxepc.com. Now, let's listen. You'll open your Bibles with me. Uh, today we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 15, located on page 987 in your pew Bibles. You'll stand with me as we read God's holy word. We're going to be reading uh, verses 15 through 32. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robes and put on his own clothes on him. Then he led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each of them would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. May God bless this reading of his word. Have a seat. In the following years after Jesus' death, the Holy Spirit prompted the Apostle Philip to go south on a road trip. And as he went south, he encountered a man, a man from Ethiopia, who was sitting there at the side of the road reading part of the prophet Isaiah, part of the book of Isaiah. And there the guy got a little stuck. You ever get stuck in your Bible reading? You kind of stumble over a verse and goes, what, what does that mean? And the Ethiopian man was reading Isaiah 53, and specifically two verses there. And he quotes those verses to Philip. He says, come over here. Do you know anything about the Bible? I want, I want, come over and read these two verses with me. What does this mean? What, what are these two verses about? It seems like they're talking about a guy, about a man who was led to slaughter, who was humiliated, who was deprived of justice. And Acts 8 said that Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, and he told the Ethiopian man the good news about Jesus. 
See, that was a perfect opening for Philip because Philip knew that this whole chapter, chapter 53 of Isaiah, was all about Jesus and Jesus' passion and his, uh, his death on the cross. There's, in fact, no, no chapter of Old Testament more clearly about Jesus Christ than Isaiah 53. He isn't called Je- Jesus there. There's this code name that we use. He was called the suffering servant. And it's been a, a bit of a controversy who that suffering servant was going to be. The Jews often will, will even today say that the suffering servant is merely representing Israel and Israel's trials and its tribulations. But I don't think that's true, and the apostles didn't either. By the wounds of the suffering servant, it said, we are told that we are healed. The wounds of Israel didn't heal us, but the wounds of somebody else may, may have. In the Christmas season, we spend a lot of time looking at how the baby Jesus should have been treated, but wasn't, right? We, we often talk about how he should have been born where? Like in a palace. He should have been, had servants fawning all over him. He should have been properly worshipped as a king. But instead, the reality of his birth was rather lowly, and it was couched in humility. I'm often, I often kind of look around every time we come to Christmas season and see how we've cleaned up Christmas in our culture. We've made it really this beautiful, sterile, kind of this glorious thing. We've made it decorative and beautiful. We've given it catchy slogans and twinkling lights. I have nothing against twinkling lights. I love them. I love them. But there is nothing attractive in getting rejected from an inn, forced to give birth among animals. There's nothing glorious and exalted about getting hunted down by an insane king who wants to murder you. And you have to admit that it's a bit of a demotion to go from God of the universe down to a small baby who soils those swaddling clothes, who clings to his mom and dad for protection. The humiliation of Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, begins at Christmas, but it culminates in the cross. Jesus was born low, he lived low, and he died low. Even as a a crying infant, even as that infant that we sing about, he was a suffering servant He was in pain, born so that man no more may die. We're going to sing that later. You probably heard the story of the cross as often as you've heard the story of Christmas. Maybe you've become so desensitized to it by how many times you've heard it. We can talk about the cross without really absorbing what it means, what Jesus went through, and why he went through it. Today, as we look at the cross here in Mark 15, I want us to hear this fresh. I want us to hear it anew. I want us to really take off that desensitization. Mark has been relentlessly driving his gospel narrative to this exact moment. This is everything he's been building up to. He wants to encourage people. He wants to show them the moment of Jesus' greatest hardship and yet his greatest victory. And for that, we need to become sensitive to it again. This morning, behold his suffering. Observe what he went through and see how great his love is for you. In the final hours of Jesus' life, Mark shares these kind of word pictures with us, these snapshots of his final moments in his life. And out of these snapshots, Mark kind of fixates on a single phrase 
That is repeated six times in the 15th chapter. Have you picked up on that? Do you still have your Bibles open? Well, what is that phrase that is repeated six times in the 15th chapter? Anybody want to take a stab? I always hate doing this. You don't want to look embarrassed in front of the class. The king of the Jews is the phrase six times used. And it might have been used most of those times with irony. Kind of a hint of mockery in the tone. But the truth behind that phrase is significant. Back in Matthew 2 in the Christmas season, we talk about the Magi coming from the east to Israel. And they have a singular mission. And this is what Matthew writes. They say, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. At that time, the king had been born, and they were seeking him. And here in Mark 15, the king is dying. And the only worship Jesus gets is fake worship, mockery, humiliation. Have you ever been publicly humiliated? Fun, isn't it? When I was 14, I went to a water park with my cousins in Texas. And one of my favorite rides was this kind of tube slide. You sat in a tube, and would ride down a series of slides in the pools. And I, I loved this. I went on it about a dozen times. And the slide going down was kind of rough, and I didn't think of it at the time. But at, around lunchtime, I walked back to see where my cousins were. And at that time, when I got to them, they started pointing at me and laughing. And what I found out was that the rough bottom of those slides had torn a rather large hole in the posterior of my swimsuit. So I had been walking around, effectively mooning, the entire water park. And as a 14-year-old boy, I wanted to crawl into a hole and never come out. I mean, you do not come back from that sort of thing. This is, this is probably I'm, this is my therapy session with you. I'm getting, getting out my humiliation. Humiliation, I mean, that's bad enough when it happens accidentally. But when it's on purpose, when somebody goes out of their way to publicly humiliate you. It cuts deeper than a knife. And I can't think of any humiliation greater than when the king of the universe is laughed at, called names, spit upon, and insulted. The suffering servant's trial and execution is nothing less than a parade of rejection for Jesus the King. Remember how we were just talking about his triumphal entry and the hosannas and the cheering him on and come and rescue us the King. And here he's going on a different sort of parade. The son who, who made each one of these people who knew more intimate details about each one of their lives is despised by the crowds, mocked by the Romans, and jeered at even by the criminals who were suffering and crucified next to him. The Romans in particular were masters of humiliation. They designed the crucifixion not just to be painful, but also to be as humiliating as possible. It was designed to strip the condemned of their dignity, of their privacy. Instead, those condemned died naked, nailed to a tree, groaning and gasping, for the world to see. And that's not even factoring in the added humiliations of soldiers pretending like Jesus was the king or the Sanhedrin coming out in full force to jeer at Jesus' 
seeming impotence. In Psalm 22, the psalmist writes this in verses 7 and 8. He says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let, them, let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is almost verbatim of what the crowd yells at Jesus now. It's a full picture of a king who has been thoroughly rejected and humiliated. And as the crowd rejects Jesus as the king, so too we as sinners began our life rejecting him, turning our back on him, saying we don't need you, Jesus. We can live our life just fine. We were the ones alongside the Romans, the Pharisees, the criminals who looked down on Jesus and spat on him for each one of our sins. But the wonderful result of the cross is that we are given a second chance, brothers and sisters, a second chance to go from that rejection to acceptance, to repent of our sins and bow down to the king even after what we have done and to be shown mercy and grace and forgiveness. In 1986, there was a landmark article that was posted in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the title of this article was called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. In this article, two doctors and a theologian banded together to go step by step through the physical process of Jesus' death, from his flogging to carrying the cross to the crucifixion, to even that final spear thrust into his side to make sure that he was dead. This nine-page paper is extremely difficult to read as it details the physical pain that the suffering servant went through. I remember having to read that paper when I was in high school, in a Christian high school, because some of those details have been with me my whole life. I don't think we as Christians need to immerse ourselves into the gore of the crucifixion, but it's important to understand at least just once the physical pain that Jesus suffered. And what he suffered was tremendous. For starters, he was flogged with a whip of metal and bone shards. And this whipping was so brutal, it actually had a nickname. They called it the halfway death because it would bring you that close. Many criminals, in fact, didn't even make it to the cross. They would die right there on the whipping floor. And from there, Jesus was beaten by a garrison of 600 soldiers who took the centurion's rod and they struck him with it again and again. When Pilate presented Jesus that crown of thorns on his head to the crowd, he was unrecognizable to even his own disciples. And the trip to the cross was a gauntlet of humiliation and suffering in itself. The condemned had to carry a hundred-pound crossbeam on their shoulders, and they had to wind their way through the city streets so that as many people as possible could see their humiliation and be warned of what, what happened when people defied Rome. Greatly weakened by the flogging, Jesus couldn't even make it to the cross. And an African man, Simon, was called upon to come and take that crossbeam up. Here's a little footnote for you. Simon, I think was a father of Rufus. In, in Acts 8, we find out that Rufus is one of the Christians who's living in Rome. Remember Mark's writing to the people in Rome? 
Rufus would be among one of those people. He'd be like, that's my boy. That is where salvation came into our household. When he started carrying Jesus' cross for him. When he took up that cross. At the cross itself, the criminals were offered a mixture of wine and narcotics. This was the only mercy that the Romans gave them for the, the trial that was ahead. Yet Jesus rejected it. He wouldn't take that. He wanted his mind clear for the task of the cross at hand. And at that point, Jesus was nailed. He was crushed. He was pierced to the cross. To breathe, the condemned had to pull themselves and push themselves up on nails to get every last agonizing breath. Crucifixions would last for hours, if not days, as the victims either slowly suffocated or they eventually died of heart failure and shock. Whenever I think of the pain of the cross as a suffering servant gasping and groaning in each agonizing minute of this experience, I am haunted by Romans 5.8. Paul wrote this, God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were still loyal servants, Christ died for us. Not while we were cheering Him on and thanking Him for dying for us on the cross, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we had still rejected Him. While we were still mocking Him. While we were still spitting on Him. Christ died for us. And the only thing that kept Jesus there, minute after agonizing minute, was His love for us. His love for you. And here's the thing. His love for you had to be greater than the suffering He was going for, going through because out of all the people being crucified, He was the only one who had the power to get down off that cross. He could have done so in a minute. But He stayed up there for you. So no matter how great His suffering was, His love for you was at least a little bit bigger. So understand his suffering because his love for you is bigger than that. It's greater than that. That's how big Jesus' love is. When we look at him, when we see him on that cross, when we understand in, in deeper detail the physical pain he went through, you can start to just get a glimpse of the picture of the love that Jesus Christ has for you. Passionately return to him in love today. You ever say something you really shouldn't have? You ever have that moment where you put your foot in your mouth? I was reading some of those stories of uh, people kind of sharing those embarrassing moments in their life. And one guy said, well, I was on a subway, and I saw a pregnant lady come in. And I stood up. I said, please, my wife is pregnant. I know what you're going through. Take my seat. Turned out she wasn't pregnant. Or a woman. But if we have to crown a winner of the the foot-in-the-mouth crowd, it has to be the Sanhedrin here in Mark 15. They strut around, the chief priests strut around the cross, stand there, crossing their arms, going, having their moment of triumph. And they say things like, Jesus, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Come down from that cross, and we'll believe in you. Come down in that cross so we can see you. They might have been delighting in the downfall of Jesus, 
But what they said couldn't have been any farther from the truth, any more off base. You see, if Jesus had come down off that cross, He would not have finished His greatest work as Savior, which was to bear the sins of His people, to endure the spiritual wrath of the Father, and to satisfy the holiness and the justice of God. Peter would later write of this in his first letter. In 1 Peter it says, Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you are healed. Even Peter's going back to to Isaiah 53. By His wounds you are healed. That is the Gospel. That is the good news that we proclaim here. Jesus died to your sins so that you would not have to suffer the eternal punishment, the eternal wrath of the Father against you. And only an innocent, blameless man had the ability to take on those sins, to drink deep of that ugly cup we talked about just a week ago, to drink in all of those sins, to smear his body, to smear his soul with every last sin that we've ever done. Jesus' choice there on the cross that they're giving him was either to save himself or to save his people. And he chose us. He chose us. The atoning work of the cross meant that your sin is taken from you if you believe, at which point you are made right with God. You are made holy and reconciled to God. You've done none of that work to make that happen. Jesus did when he's on the cross. Rejoice in this, brothers and sisters, if you are saved today. See what Jesus did for you. And if you are not, he's right there. He's willing to take those sins from you if you'll just ask him. At the end of this passage on the suffering servant, Isaiah remarks on the outcome of the man's work, what the suffering servant did. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, Isaiah said. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their sins. The resurrection from the suffering servant is right around the corner. And when that happens, Jesus will not only see life again, but his victory on the cross will make many people righteous before God. He will justify him. He'll make them just, in which before they were hopelessly mired in their sin, but now they are just in front of God. As we behold the suffering servant hanging there on the cross, pierced and crushed for our iniquities, you have a choice to submit to his kingship, to love him, maybe in a way that he's loved you, just not as much, but you can still love him with all your heart and rejoice in the saving work of that cross that promised you a spot in all eternity for what he did on those hours of that fateful day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look upon you on on the cross, it's almost too hard for us to imagine. Too uncomfortable for us when we realize that our sins put you there. Our mistakes. Our rebellion. And yet, Lord, you loved us so incredibly much that you did not turn away from the cross. You bore the pain. You bore the humiliation. You bore the spiritual suffering 
And you did it for us, Lord. May we turn back to you. May people hear the words of the Gospels and respond to it with their whole soul. Loving you, Lord. Coming to you. Thanking you. Worshiping you. Praising you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you again for listening. It is our sincere prayer that today's message has brought you closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We welcome you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. You can also audio stream our full service. Details can be found at our website. Our church is fully wheelchair accessible and loop enabled for the hearing impaired. For a full schedule of activities and more information on our beliefs, visit our website at www.noxepc.com or call our church office at 716 873 2423.